0: Thank you, Carla. The kids are dismissed for Children's Church. There, there are Sundays where you, you look at the, the Scripture and you, and you prepare and you think, how do I bring out the truths that are spoken here so that they can become real for people, that, that they can become great? There are other Sundays where perhaps you look at the Scriptures, uh, you're, you're a preacher you're called to teach, and you're like, how do I make this fresh again for people? common one with that would be like the greatest commandments or the story of the Good Samaritan. Ones that we hear a lot, that that they've become so familiar, the call contained within them has become unfamiliar. There are Sundays like this where you read that gospel or that passage from Ephesians, and it's like, that's the sermon. There's not much more to say or add. The only thing you really want to do as sort of a preacher is sort of interweave back into that text and into that story. You want to sort of... Move into that place. You want to sort of draw people back to what was said there. That, that this part of Ephesians is sort of bringing out life more and more through it. Um, this part of Ephesians speaks the gospel in ways that, that are clear for us and makes it sort of confronting for us. And so this Sunday we, we sort of move forward in, in this journey with, um, with Ephesians. You know, last, the first Sunday we did sort of just the greeting which I'm gonna realize in hindsight was a mistake, because while it was good to do an introduction to, to what's contained in the book of Ephesians, there's so much here that, to finish this by Advent, um, I mean, today's chapter was is massive. There could be two sermons there. Um, I'm sure somebody famous has done 400 sermons on that section of Ephesians. So, um, you know, we have this this way, but we've gotta keep moving it. And then last Sunday we did, what somebody said in the Greek was this, this the worst constructed, most overwhelming mess of a sentence ever, which was the was the first half of what we did Sunday, and then the second half was another sentence that was also just, like, loaded with things, that there were more images coming forth, and they were bursting forth, and, and a couple commentators this week pointed out that, like, Paul has mellowed out a little from where he started when we get to two, which I'm like, thank God, because <laughs> while Paul may be able to give a greeting and a prayer for you that says, hey, there's 27 points to the sermon, nobody wants that from their pastor. Um, and so while he's overloading these words and saying these things, and he does it here too, but certainly in a lesser form, that we sort of get to slow down and focus on what Paul's really trying to say to us. Early, he's calling us into this grace and peace and this goodness that God has done through Jesus Christ, that he's revealed through the ages and is making known now. And he's caught up in all this praise and reminding them of all the things that this can mean, that it becomes almost overwhelming. And so we move to today's chapter two. As for you, you were dead in your sins and transgressions. But before we begin on that, I just want to draw out this, this image that I drew, but I changed it. Does anybody notice what I changed, by the way? I'm feeling good about my artwork. The lines are straighter. The, lines are straighter. the app has a ruler. I figured out how to use that. Um, so the lines are straighter. That's true. Um, I added a a dotted line for that first section, as we talked about last week. What Paul is saying to the Ephesians is that God didn't go with Jesus. Well, we've got this mess on our hands, and so let's finally do something about it, and sending you in the flesh to sort of deal with this once and all. What he actually is doing is revealing his plan from the beginning. It's the mystery being made known. In what Jesus does but it's not actually a new plan it's not like something God just finally got fed up and so that dotted line is to say that this second timeline this timeline of life and eternity actually was was somewhat underlying all along but has now been made known in the cross which is why the little t is for the cross down there um, uh, and then the second timeline is that timeline of death and so which looks like Eve and see more of the D up on that one um, But the second timeline is this timeline of death, which is what Paul's calling out for us today. He's saying that you were formerly caught in death, and now you've been raised to new life. And one of the things that I'm really trying to hit from from sort of this Ephesians thing is that now that we are in Christ, now that we've been moved, now that we've joined Christ in, in the church, is that we actually have a different social location. We actually have a different time that we reside in. We actually have a different place and a different way of being. So much so that if you were to look at these two ages or two timelines, that we've been relocated from the one timeline in Christ's death and resurrection to the other timeline. And now what we live in, which Paul makes clear in a lot of his language, is this overlapping of the ages. That while God has has done his definitive work in Jesus Christ, there's a final consummation coming where it says ends. Um, And what will happen is that lifeline will go on for eternity. And so what happens in becoming a follower of Jesus is we're moved from one to the other. And that's a transformation that, that means so much. We talked about it would, it would change the way you pray. It would change the way you think about your life. It would change the way you think about your neighbor. It would change the way you understand your citizenship in, in the world as citizen of heaven. Like, it would change the way you think about so many things. It would change the way you use. And so, you know, part of what we have is, is not to pick on Oprah, um, but we have sort of this like religion is a spiritual add on to your life. And the church has done, done some of that too is that like there's this add on dimension to like, oh, you want a spiritual life, you can do this. If any of you were a college freshmen during the early 2000s, they had like a circle and they were like, draw a circle of your life and how much you want it to be fun and how much you want it to be study and how much, just like, yes, yeah, so as a first week of college, I've really perfected how much of my life is going to be study as I fail out, regardless of which. <laughs> Um, you know, they do that, and then they're like, okay, if you're religious, you can put this into the pie, too. And you have your little religious sliver of this pie of time. And I, I was being the one who, I had a lot of friends when I started college. Um, I pointed out to, the, to the, the teacher in the classes there, and I was like, look, if you're religious, it's the whole pie. I mean, it's not like you have your work and your play and your study on this. If you're religious, and it doesn't matter which religion you are, but most of them want to make a total claim on your life. They're not like, and then filter off this part, and then this part, and then this lever. Let's say 10% or 20% is going to be what you give to your God. I mean, if you really think you know God, if you really think that God has done something for you, or if you think that you've found enlightenment, whatever the religion is, it's not 10% of the pie. It's the whole thing. Needless to say, they were like, well, then put that down and stop talking. <laughs> But today's passage begins that you were dead in your transgressions. One of the things I want to draw out for us today is is Paul is working an interesting self-understanding out here. Understanding yourself backwards is what he's sort of doing. Nobody, before they knew Jesus, understood themselves as dead in their transgressions, right? They weren't walking around going, whoa, look at me, here I am dead in my transgressions. I hope a God will come and save me. And then Paul shows up, and it's like, boy, do I have news for you. What happens is, is through introducing them to Christ, they begin to understand their lives backwards. That they were sort of dead in those transgressions. And what he's doing is reminding them of that moment. As for you, before you met Christ, you were dead in your transgressions. Now, this is this is a challenging one for us, and I think sort of in two ways, is, is that, one, we all sort of agree to this as Christians, is that before we came to know Christ, we were dead in our transgressions, Right? Um, but, but what Paul goes on to say in this passage is in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and those who are disobedient. And all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh and the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. That Paul is talking about here is more than just, a, you know, this metaphysical or larger change that happens when we become Christians. He's talking about the Acts, the way that you walked, which is one way to translate this Greek word. And it should be helpful to know um, if you're familiar with Psalm 1 or lots of the Old Testament, the way that you walk is, is sort of your moral formation, it's your life. How do you walk in the world? And so he's saying, You once walked purely in disobedience. But I think we're the challenge for Christians today. Why I say this is a challenge, is do we understand ourselves backwards enough to say? What is what has died in me as I joined Christ? What is it that had to pass away? What is it? I mean, for instance, when you're, when you're older and you become a Christian, or if you're older and you look at the world, you're like, oh, I don't know what needs to die in those people to become Christians, which I think is entirely unhelpful, um, unless you can understand yourself and say, what changed in me? What was the ways in which I walked in disobedience and wrath? Because we ask this of people. We ask them to change in that way. And yet oftentimes we don't have an answer for ourselves. What did it cost you? What was the death that you were walking in that changed when you were rescued by Jesus Christ? You know, Kelly and I were talking about it this week, which is, hey, conversations at the Shem's house. Come over. This is fun. What is the way you were dead before you became into Jesus Christ? And, and Kelly, Kelly, who became Christian later in life, Uh, in college was like, well, I had to give up wanting to do everything just for myself. Like, I had to give just pleasing me and doing everything I wanted to do. Like, I had to sort of, like, surrender a lot of that to do that. And she said, you know, I'm I'm a pastor's wife now. And I said, yeah, but you didn't know what you were getting into. Um, uh, You weren't in the church. You didn't know this job description. And She was like, yeah, well, still the same. Um, And so I had to give up a lot of that and sort of my own control of my own life to sort of walk in this way. I think of my own self and the ways in which I'm still working to die in the ways, to see that, that I was sort of by death. And I think the challenge, is, as Paul starts this, is to say, you know, you were dead in your transgressions. And for us to go, here's how I was dead in my transgressions. Now, I say that, I don't mean to make a, um, a fetish of your own self introspection, You can treat yourself as maybe you're a little too interesting sometimes. But I do think it's important that we have an answer to this question. If we're going to say to the world, look, we understand ourselves backwards through what God has done in Jesus Christ, that we've left this path, this walking of death, and moved into this walking of life. And so that's sort of where Paul begins. He lists off these three things that sort of are are a challenge for them when they were doing this, is that there was the age or the world, The devil and the flesh. And all of these, he sort of gives us sort of this living death. Now, I didn't know this until recently, but these are sort of the three sort of classical definitions of what Christians will struggle with. They will struggle with the world, they will struggle with the devil, and they will struggle with the flesh. And then Paul begins to treat sin as not just like bad acts we do, but as a power at work in the world, as something that distorts and disforms. It's something that that is so much there, it's not just like, well, I lied once, or I did this, but it's something that's sort of like sucking everything in. Or if you want to think of it a different way, it's like a stain in the world. And it's a stain that wants to touch and leak out to everything. But Paul, and this is the first verb sort of moment in the Greek, In this verse, he says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. These these but phrases, there's one in Romans too. But because of God's great love for us, God has done something about that. Because of God's great love for us, he has taken what was a living death and made us truly alive. Now, one of the first things I love about this phrase is that God is rich in mercy. And the Greek word is like very, very, very rich, like beyond wealthy. And I think as we think of, like, Christians in the world and we think of ourselves, is what is our God rich in? You know, wrath was mentioned right before this, but it doesn't say God was rich in wrath. It said that God was rich in his mercy. That mercy is what God has a wealth of. It's something that should stop us in our tracks often. That God is full of this mercy. That if God has too much of one thing, it's mercy. That if God is overwhelming in something, it's his mercy for us. Because of his great love, God, who is rich in mercy, has done something about that. The God, who is rich in mercy, has sort of transformed the way that we are and made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. Because of God's great mercy, God has done something we can't do for ourselves. Just this huge hinge that happens in the Christian life is to say that as much as I want to try, as much as I want to earn, as much as I think I can do, or even just like I've done this, you know, is that there's no room for that here. And this is where he gets into boasting in this passage, is that boasting is the greatest act of self-deception. To boast that this is something we've done or found is to lose fact of it is that it's God's work through and through all the way down. Because of God's great love for us, who is rich in mercy, God has done this. Not many people I know in the Christian life are self delusional to think they're a little bit better. But sometimes that pride can eke in. To say that I found this, why that can't other people find this? Or, or why are other people making these bad decisions when I found this? And, and it's a shame to think that because what the boast is in the work that God has done for us. God has raised us up. God has seated us in the heavenly realms and that he has given us the incomparable riches of his grace and expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. This is where like, where, what I started with, like with sermon over, right? Like there's not much more you can say to hear the good news that Paul is talking about, that that we were dead in our transgressions, is that God has made us alive again, that God has brought us into life, that God has sort of trained, changed our social location from one of sort of a living death into new life. We've been made alive again. This is one of my favorite phrases that 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 I don't know where I first heard it. Actually, if you know where I first heard it, The funny phrase that the first place I heard the phrase was at a Kanye West concert from Kanye West, which is like bizarre. But he said he has uh, this guy come out who's white Jesus. White Jesus says to him, "Just now, I realized I've gone way too far." Um, White Jesus says to him, "I didn't come to make um, bad people good. I came to make dead people alive. I didn't come to make bad people." good i came to make dead people alive and i think there's this huge thing in that in which like christianity we think of can become this sort of moral improvement project is that i'm supposed to be good and what actually is this transformation of from death to life for moving in sort of this walking death to moving into this place of life and through that god has seated us where he's sort of conquering these powers that distort He seated us in the heavenly realms next to Jesus, which is just an amazing thing to think about is that we're seated on a different plane where we see that this conflict is being extinguished. We're seated on that second timeline. We're seated in this place. And what happened is that we were dead and that we were made alive. And so he continues, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that one can boast. And then he, he closes with this phrase, For we are God's handiwork, created in Jesus Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now that's, that's a thick section, too, because we first have this, we don't do this in good works, right? For, but we are God's handiwork, and what has God's handiwork been prepared to do? To do good works that God has prepared for us in advance, One thing that that should shadow much of the Christian life is the Christian life isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning, which is a big distinction. The Christian life is opposed to you thinking you're earning something, you're making something. But but oftentimes as we get obsessed with like, well, we don't earn our salvation, we don't do that. What we do is start to kick like effort under the table. It's like, so don't try, just accept, you know. Um, And the Christian life I don't think is opposed to effort. Because what God has done to us is is sort of made us into his artwork. Um, This is is the the Greek word for that. And if you look at it, it's like poem. We are God's poem. We are God's artwork. We are God's, um, there's another way in which this appears in in ancient Greek. We are God's repairing person for a world gone array. Like, that what we are called to is we're called out of death into life. is to be this beautiful thing that God is fashioning in the world that does good works, that he's prepared for. I love that the good works are prepared, because then those you can't even be like, look what I did, is that they were prepared in advance for you by God. But I think, and as I was a youth pastor, and I think that I forget that adults need this message too, is that your gods are, you, if you have been dead and raised to new life, are God's poem, are God's way of repairing this creation. This is what you're called into when you're called into new life. And so this is what we have sort of coming for us in the Christian life. Mm-hmm. But then we have the second half of today's passage, which is a little bit more complex. In the first passage, he's sort of dealing with, and this, it should be noted that this passage deals in sort of divine conflict, cosmic conflict metaphors. Is that God is this God who's, in, in these passages, is a God who's conquering, or, or the Lord of all, and then there's conflict that God then conquers, which is the world, the death, the devil, and the flesh. And then there's sort of this celebration. So God conquers those things in the first half. What God conquers in the second half, and this should be huge news for us, is the dividing wall of hostility between Gentiles and Jews. He, he, he conquers the wall that divides people. For the first century Christians, and, and, and Ephesians, most people think is written to primary Gentile audience. So why would they be concerned about this It's interesting. But Paul is telling him that the distinctions that, that sort of exist in the world, there are Jews who are called by God, and then there are, there are Gentiles who are all these people who are not. And, and what he says is that, that that line dividing humanity has been broken down in Christ. But I think even more so what Paul would say is that all the lines that divide humanity through what Christ has done are being broken down. That the wall that divides in many communities, in many hearts, in many lives, in many sort of places, is being broken down in what Christ has done for us. So, not just so that he can break it down, but so that he can fashion one new humanity in Jesus Christ. This is, this is the huge news of the second section, is that the, that the enemy that Christ is abolishing here is the one that divides people. What does it say is that he came preaching peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. Christ comes as one who preaches and teaches peace. And so as I said, this, this story that Paul is telling in the section fits that divine conflict metaphor. And yet it's, you'd be like, well, it's very different, right? First, he conquers it through the cross, which is like not you don't go to the cross if you're the conqueror, right? Uh, you, you, you have a parade. Second off, The strange thing about it is that he comes and he frees people to peace. He frees them to to different life, and he teaches them that peace as well. Christ does this way in Paul of using these metaphors and then sort of turning them in a way that makes them a little bit different than what they are. This is the story of how our God rules and reigns and conquers, and it includes a cross and his teaching of peace to us as we are far off and we come near. That this is sort of the movement that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul here is, is not opposed to mixing metaphors, again, as we talked about last week. In this last section, there, or he talks about how we are both citizens of this commonwealth, that is as, as Gentiles, and this is, what I think, important for us, is to get the sense in which we are becoming part of Judaism. We're becoming part of God's promise to Abraham. We're becoming part of those people. Paul is making this point to people who don't have these people around who are like, oh, but you have to be circumcised. And yet he still thinks it's important to work into their imagination that God was active long before what happens that they're learning in Jesus Christ. That they're to come to this place. They're supposed to be citizens of this place. That they were once far off from this. And he uses this phrase that they had no gods, which if you were somebody who was dead in your transgressions, you were a Gentile. You had lots of gods. You had marketplaces for gods. You had gods all over the ancient world. What he says is, you had no gods, okay. which is interesting because that's what the also the, the ancient world says of the Jews. They have no god because they have no temple, they have no uh, a place where they go and offer sacrifice, and they have no images of their god. They have no um, you know shrines, so they don't really have a god. That doesn't hit the categories. And, and what the most famous thing about the Christians in the ancient world when they begin to write about these people is they say. First off, they're atheists. Uh, and second off, they're cannibals, which is connects to the Lord's Supper. But That's sort of the two things that they sort of oppose Christians on. And what Paul does here is he turns it and he said, when you have lots of gods and lots of temples and lots of places to go, you actually had no gods. But now Christ has come near to you through his blood and is teaching you peace and inviting you into this this, this Citizenship. But then he'll use, and this is getting back to the metaphors, he'll use this house. He's inviting you into this house. And then he'll say, but it's also this living temple, right? And then in the Greek, it becomes more clear. He says it grows, which like buildings don't grow. Um, He uses an organic metaphor too. And Paul is using all these things to sort of speak to the Christians in their lives to say, this is what God is doing for you. He's calling you into a new people, into a new mission, into a new place on earth, into one new humanity so that you would be transformed for the mission of God in the world while destroying the hostility that divides and destroying the the desires of the flesh and the distortion that comes with it. You've been raised up, you've been seated in a different place, and now you are living with Christ. And not only that, you're being made into the place where he's going to reside here on. This, I think, is the biggest challenge for the book of Ephesians, and one that I think about a lot going into this, and I rarely make it explicit, but there's something about our common life together that's supposed to be the place of where God comes through on earth. The one who came and taught peace to us. The one who came and seated us in a different spot. The one who came and took us from death and brought us into new life. The church which I've made enough jokes about already in the sermon series, does not get a great track record. And yet, taken from 120 to the end of chapter 2, the church is God's plan to put creation back into the other and to grow its expansion into the world. Now, going back to the timeline, I don't think that Paul is like, so slowly we'll make the world a perfect place. I think he says that this place is supposed to grow here on earth until that God comes and finally consummates this and demolishes the things that destroy and tear down and disform his creation, and renews it in its proper place. But that's what Paul thinks of what we do here. That's what Paul thinks of our life together. That's what Paul thinks of who we are. We're not just God's artwork. We're the place where God is intending to be active on earth. With Christ as our cornerstone, we're supposed to be this temple and this building that expands into the world. And not just to make a bigger church, if you follow these passages, but to restore genuine humanity. That's one of the things that Christ does when he comes among us, is he comes as the the genuine human one, if you want to say it that way. The actual human one. And so what we're supposed to be inviting people into is to what genuine humanity would look like. This isn't just to make a bigger church, but to invite people into what Paul is later going to name in these in these these fruits of the Spirit, in the ways in which God is transforming our households and lives, in the ways in which God is making something new out of us. God didn't take us from death and raise us to life just to leave us there, but to bring us into a community that models that for the world. And this is perhaps why it's important that this Israel thing is mentioned here, that Paul wants them to get it, because that was the call for Israel all along as well, too, is to be a light to the nations, to be a blessing to those who don't know, to be called out by God so that they can can be an agent of witnessing that to, to the world that a different way is possible. Sort of what's going on here in this passage is two final things. The first is, um, I think I can connect the two, so it's one final thing with two points. Um, The first is the quote which is on the back of the bulletin. When the sun rises after the night and the whole world is lit up by it, nobody doubts that it is the sun which has thus shed its light everywhere and driven away the dark. Equally is it since the utter scorning and trampling down of death has ensued upon the Savior's manifestation in the body and his death on the cross that it is for he himself who brought death to naught, as daily raises monuments to his victory over death in his disciples. Doubt no longer then when you see death mocked and scorned by those who believe in Christ, that by Christ death was destroyed and the corruption that goes with it resolved and brought to an end. We're God's artwork, we're God's poem, we're God's this, but the thing I like about this passage from Athanasius writing in the third century is that Christ is doing in the believers in the church is establishing a monument to his victory over death. How's that for a call to go into the world? Go in as Christ has made you, a monument to his victory over death. And the forces that disform and enable. The second thing to close with is, is that we, we've long had this practice, and David reminded me of it, that I haven't mentioned it for a long time, of this this sits uh, in front of the nursery, and it's a, a thing with water in it. Um, but the point of this, this, this thing with water in it is what Paul says to the Ephesians here, is to remember, to remember these things, to understand themselves backwards, to eclipse their memory in such a way, to understand themselves as those who have been brought from death into new life. Now, the classic Christian way for understanding this is baptism. If we have been been lowered down in death, we are raised to new life with Christ. And so one of the things that this is for is for you on your way into church, if you so want to, I mean, there is no mandatoryness here, is to to take some water and to remember that you are baptized. Because one of the things we talked about is that Paul is over and over again telling people, remember how this was. Remember who you are. He has this idea that if you can remember what your identity is, where you've been raised, where you've been seated, that you're a monument to Christ's victory over death, that that will actually work its way out into your life. And so this, this serves, and it sits back there as a reminder of our identity as ones who have been brought through that, who have been raised to new life, or people who are people who are grafted into the story. Um, and so that's that's why that is out there. And so that brings us to our close. Let us pray.